Welcome to Oakden Baptist Church and our sermon series, Touching the Untouchable, Approaching God. For more resources or information on the life of OBC, please go to our website at www.oaktonbaptist.org.au. Check out our Facebook page or download our app. We're getting into the book of Leviticus. So, you know, as I've said, I think you can't understand the sacrificial work of Christ unless you really study the book of Leviticus. And uh, week one, we looked at chapter one and the burnt offering. And then week two, we looked at the grain offering. And this week, we're up to chapter three and the peace offering. So open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter three. We're going to be looking at the peace offering. But before we get started today, I have a question for you. A question that I asked myself this week, and it's a very challenging question. It's this question. Do you enjoy being in relationship with God? Just think about that for a second. Do you actually enjoy being in relationship with God? Do you really enjoy being a Christian? You know, I think that for many Christians, even though they wouldn't say this, deep down, they don't actually enjoy being a Christian. Um, You know, it's something they endure. It's something that they see as their duty. It's something that they would never give up because they wouldn't want the consequences of what that would mean. But in reality, it's not really something that they enjoy. And the things that we don't enjoy, we don't pursue. Last year, I was talking to Pastor Andrew, and I was saying to him how I wanted to start playing some sport because I wanted to get fit. And I shared with him some of the ideas of what I was going to do, and he said something very profound to me. He said, unless you actually enjoy the sport that you are playing, you won't continue playing it. Just doing a sport because you want to get fit is not enough. You must actually enjoy doing it. Because the things we don't enjoy, we don't pursue. And I think maybe this might be the reason for much of our spiritual lethargy, for much of the reason why we don't actually pursue God in prayer that often, for why we don't actually read the Bible or engage in wholehearted worship. Because deep down, we don't want to admit it, but maybe we don't actually enjoy knowing God. You see, is knowing God the greatest joy of your life, or is it just a duty? So how can you rekindle joy in your heart? How can you rediscover that joy of your salvation? Well, from the peace offering today, we learn a very important lesson about worship. From the burnt offering, we learned that true worship requires commitment. And from the grain offering, we learned that gratitude should follow grace. But from the peace offering, we learn that the joy of knowing God is rekindled by celebrating our peace with God. The joy of knowing God is actually rekindled in our hearts by celebrating the fact that we are at peace with God. And what we're going to see from the peace offering today is two things. First, that peace with God comes through the shed blood of a substitute. And second, that peace with God 
is celebrated by having communion with God. So the joy of knowing God is rekindled by celebrating your peace with God. But what enables peace with God? What enables us to have peace with God? Well, first, what the peace offering teaches us is that peace with God comes through the shed blood of a substitute. Look down in your Bibles. In verse 1, we read this. If his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, that's a cow. Now, down in verses 6 to 11, we'll read that it can be a lamb from the flock. And in verses 12 to 17, it could be a goat. But basically, the same instructions is given for all those animals. So we're not going to repeat them. But look down in verse 1 again. But if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Now, some of those instructions are different from the burnt offering. Um, In the burnt offering, you're only allowed to offer a male. Whereas here in the peace offering, it was a male or a female. But interestingly enough, the rest of those instructions are exactly the same. The animal had to be without blemish, meaning you had to give your best to the Lord. You had to put your hand upon it, symbolizing that your guilt was being transferred to the animal. And you had to kill the animal, and its blood was thrown against the sides of the altar, symbolizing atonement, that it was dying as your substitute in your place. So why are these instructions at the beginning of the peace offering the exactly the same instructions as the burnt offering? Well, I think it was that the Lord was teaching Israel this very important principle, that peace with God comes through the blood of a substitute, that in order to have peace with God, it comes through the shed blood of a substitute. You know, we all tend to think that reconciliation, that making peace in relationships is just a simple thing. But did you know that every time Every time forgiveness is granted and reconciliation is made, someone has to pay. Forgiveness is actually very costly. Either the one asking for forgiveness has to make amends for what they've done, or the one forgiving has to choose to live with the consequences of the person's sin. But make no mistake, forgiveness and reconciliation is costly. Now, God just can't overlook sin. I remember four years ago, sitting in an oxygen conference and hearing one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, speak. I'll never forget what John Piper said. It was one of the few things that I tweeted on my Twitter account. (laughs) He said, we often think that God's forgiveness is just a simple thing, but that's what God does. God forgives. But what Piper pointed out is it's actually difficult for God to forgive. You see, he just can't overlook sin. To do that would rip a hole in the fabric of the justice of the universe. Since he is holy and righteous, he must punish sin. If he didn't, he would no longer be a good, just judge. So God was teaching the Israelites that for them to reconcile with him, for them to be at peace with him in their relationship with him, it came at the cost 
of the death of a substitute. Sin results in death, and the sin against him had to be paid for so that they could be at peace. Now, as you look forward to the New Testament, of course you see that Christ himself was actually that substitute, and that it's through the shed blood of Christ as our substitute that we are now at peace with God. In Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20, we read, For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is through the cross and through Christ's own blood that we are now at peace with God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Romans 5 verse 1, he says that that verse should bring us great emotional relief. We are at peace with God. The type of relief that comes that when you go to the doctor... And the doctor says that your results are negative and you do not have cancer. Or the type of relief that comes when you see your your child walk out on a busy road and you're able to just grab them and rescue them in time. That's the type of relief that this statement should bring us, that we are at peace with God through Jesus, our substitute. But I wonder as you sit here this morning, did you experience that type of emotional relief as those verses were read out, that you are at peace with God. Let's be honest, probably not. And I think that part of the reason is that for many of us, before we came to Christ, we were church kids. We're church kids, grew up in the church. And at best, we thought that we were just neutral with God. We're not anti-God. We're not anti-religious. But the Bible actually paints a very different picture. The Bible says that before someone becomes a Christian, they are at war with God. In Romans 8 verse 7, it says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Paul is saying that before you became a Christian, your mind was set on the flesh, meaning that your mind, your whole, your whole avenue of your life was set on pleasing yourself and you were rejecting God's rule and therefore you were at war with God. But not only does the Bible say that you were at war with God, the Bible says something even more frightening. The Bible says because you were at war with God, God was at war with you. Romans 1 verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is righteously angry with the way that we have replaced him and sinned against him. He is angry when he hears about 1.2 million children being in slavery. That every 24 seconds, a child is put into slavery to satisfy the lusts of a white man. God is angry at that. He's not indifferent at that. But he's not just angry at that. He's angry at all the ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't want to have as my enemy an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. But the Bible says that before I came to Christ, I was not some neutral church kid. As I grew up in Burham District Christian Fellowship in Burham Heads in Queensland, I was at war with God. I was an enemy of God. So before a person becomes a Christian, they are at war with God, even though they may not have realized it. And God is at war with them. But here is the great news. If a person has repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, then the war is over. A peace treaty has been signed since they have been justified by faith, since Jesus took the wrath of God for our sin as our substitute. We have peace with God. What a relief. But of course, the hostility is only over if the war has ended. God has made a a way for the war to be over through the death of his son. But there can only be peace when both parties agree to peace. God has opened up the way for peace to occur. He he was the one who was offended and he paid the price. Yet, in order for there to be peace, you must give up your war on God. You must stop living for yourself and accept his gift of peace through Jesus. And I want to urge you, if you haven't done that yet this morning, if you haven't made that decision, it's a decision that you need to make where you decide, I'm going to stop living for myself and I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to trust in Christ alone as my substitute. If you've not done that this morning, I urge you to do that because you don't want as an enemy the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. You may be thinking that you're winning the war for a little while, living for yourself, but there will come a day when all of us will stand before God, our judge, and God has made a way for you to be at peace with him before that occurs. But if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Christ as your substitute, then the great news is the hostility has ended There is a peace agreement that's been signed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know what I'm preaching to you today sounds very foreign to us, because in most churches today, the the message is, you're awesome, and we think you're awesome, and you're awesome. I know that's the message that's going out in most churches, but maybe that's the the reason why we don't have much revival, is because the beauty of seeing The gospel of grace is only seen against the dark backdrop of judgment. You can only see the light of the glory of Christ when you see how much our sin deserved. Now, you might say as you sit here today, I just sinned last night. Am I still at peace with God? Well, I have great news for you. You see, This peace is not just a subjective peace. It is an objective reality. If you have repented and believed in the gospel, then you are no longer under the wrath of God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there is conviction. 
The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin, but conviction is completely different from condemnation. When the Holy Spirit comes to us and convicts us of our sin, he always does it to liberate us, and he will always give us a pathway forward for repentance. But there is another person who speaks to us about our sin. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 10, that the devil is the accuser of Christians, and he accuses them day and night before God. Before we are tempted, he entices us. Before we fall in temptation, he entices us. He says, go on, do it. You can get away with it. It's no big deal. But after we've fallen into temptation, he then condemns us. You stinky Christian. How can you do such a thing? How can you call yourself a Christian? It's like he throws a wet blanket of condemnation over us. And I have found that many Christians are stuck in a prison of condemnation. Many Christians never enjoy the fact that they are at peace with God. They feel so bad about their past and they never realize that their past has been completely dealt with at the cross. Charles Price, he tells this story about a woman that he had met while ministering. She told him that for 20 years, she had confessed to God a particular sin that she had been involved with in her late teens. He didn't ask her for the details, but she said for 20 years, and she was now 40, she had confessed this sin to God every day. She said the memory of that sin and the consequence of that sin have sat on me this whole time. It's impacted my marriage. It's made me a poor mother to my children. And she told Charles that the church she attended had asked her to teach a Sunday school class, but she said, I have turned it down every time because I know what I'm like and I know my past. I couldn't possibly serve God because of my history. You see, there are many Christians that are just like that. They are in a prison of condemnation. The devil is very clever. Before you came to Christ, he was trying to prevent you from seeing the glory that's in Christ. But now you are in Christ. He's trying to prevent you from embracing the full benefits of your salvation. And the truth is, if you have trusted in Christ, then you are at peace with God. And you need to claim his objective peace. You need to have your feet shod, as Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 15, in the gospel of peace. You need to take your stand in the objective peace of the gospel that Christ as your substitute has shed his blood and you have now been reconciled to God. And it is that objective peace of God that will give you the confidence to step out of darkness and into light. William Remain, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening, wrote this. Now listen to this carefully. He said, no sin can be crucified in heart or in life unless it first be pardoned in the conscience. No sin can be crucified in heart or in life unless it first be pardoned in the conscience because there will be a want of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it not be mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. Now, many of you are sitting there going, how is that profound? That's just washed right over the top of your head. You don't understand what that means. What it means is this. 
This is, this, this, is where, this is actually the place where you live. This is the place where I live. This is our address. So what happens is when we sin, unless we are really confident that God has paid for that sin, that that, that sin has been dealt with on the cross, what we will do is we will spend time trying to self-atone before we think we can come back to God. And that's the place where most of you live. It is. Is you sin, and then you think, before I can come back to God, I need to have five quiet times. Before I come back to God, I need to clean myself up. Before I come back to God, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to make all these promises to God that I'm never going to do this again by my own strength. And that self-atonement actually keeps us from approaching the throne of grace in our time of need. But it's actually confidence in the gospel. It's confidence in my standing, in my peace with God. That I'm at peace with God. That not part of my sin, but my sin in whole is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. That gives me the confidence to actually, when I sin, run back to him for cleansing and forgiveness. I don't clean myself up. He's the one who does it. He's the one who cleanses me from all unrighteousness. But you will never get there. You'll, be, you'll end up self-atoning all the time if you don't fully embrace the peace that you have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful, precious thing. And we need to claim that objective peace. We need to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Every morning, Christian, Listen up. Every morning, get up. Say, today as I walk around, I'm going to walk around in the objective peace of the gospel. That I'm at peace with you, God. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Richard Lovelace, who who says that most Christians base their justification on their sanctification. You know what that means? They base their standing with God on how well they're doing in their walk with God when it actually should be completely the opposite way around. We base our walk with God on our justification, on our standing with God. He says, he was writing this in the 70s, and it hasn't changed much. He says, few Christians know enough to start each day stepping forward and saying, I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ. God is at peace with me. Through Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. And now I can have the confidence to come to you when the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin so that you can cleanse me and change me and put to death that sin in my life. You see, the joy of knowing God comes from celebrating the fact that we are at peace with God. But how do you celebrate that? Well, let's look at my second point today. My second point today is that peace with God is celebrated by having communion with God. Look down in your Bibles in verse 3. It says, And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and the two kidneys 
with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn on the altar on the top of the burnt offering, which on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is pleasing to God. Now, similar instructions are given for the lamb in verses 9 to 11 and the goat in verses 14 to 17. Basically, the fat, the two kidneys, and the liver were removed and burnt on the altar to the Lord. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, the fat was important because it was considered to be the best part of the animal. So you were giving your best to the Lord. The kidneys were prized portions since they were seen as the parts that would sustain life. And so they were seen as the best. So they were giving their best to the Lord. The liver was uh, used in pagan rituals in order to divine the future, something that in Israel was forbidden. And so by giving the liver to the Lord, the Israelite worshiper was showing their exclusive commitment to the Lord. But did you notice that there's no mention of what happens with the rest of the meat? What happens with the rest of the meat? Only the fat, the two kidneys, and the liver were removed and burnt up. What happened with the rest of the meat? Well, here's the unique thing about the peace offering. The peace offering was actually a covenant meal that was shared between the Lord, the priest, and the worshiper. You see, in the ancient Near East, to eat meat with someone signified that you were making them your friends, your allies. It meant the end of hostility. So eating meat in the presence of the Lord as the worshiper would bring this animal to the Lord and, and the liver and the, what was the rest of it? Fat and the kidneys were removed and burnt up to the Lord. The rest would be taken. And the thigh and the breast would be given to the priest, and he would eat that. And then the worshiper would eat the rest in front of the tabernacle, which was where the presence of the Lord was. And it signified their fellowship with the Lord. You see, in the burnt offering, we have the atonement. In the In the grain offering, we have a Christian's response, giving the work of their hands to the Lord. But in the peace offering, we have this celebration of fellowship with God, this celebration that we are at peace with God. You see, there is a time to fast and there is a time to feast. There is a time to bring out the fine china, to dress up in suits and to have an exorbitant meal. At weddings, we often come together and we will celebrate the the, the covenant made between two people before the Lord with a reception, with a great meal. Now, often we don't enjoy it because we don't fast very often in our culture. We feast nearly every single day in our culture. So when it comes to special feasts, they're not really special to us. But for the Israelites, who would hardly ever eat meat, this was a major celebration before the Lord. They were eating a covenant meal before the Lord, celebrating their communion with God. You see, peace with God is celebrated by having communion with God, when you have intimate fellowship with God, that, that, that helps you celebrate that you're at peace with God. You know, I went away to America for three weeks recently, left my wife and my kids, and I'm still at peace with Tegan. The whole time I was at peace with Tegan, 
I was in covenant relationship with Tegan, no problems. But I did worry when I came back because I knew by my being away, when I came back to the family, when I came back to Tegan and the kids, that I'd just sort of be out of sync because we hadn't had communion together. We hadn't had time together. I hadn't spent time relating with one another. And for the next week, we were a little bit out of sync, but fortunately, we were all in sync. We're all good now, so elders don't have to worry about my my marriage. We're all good. But I wonder, when's the last time you had communion with God? When you sat in his presence, just as his child, and enjoyed the fact that you were at peace with him through Jesus, your substitute. I was listening to a preacher a while back, and he was saying that he was finding in his spiritual life that the joy had gone. And his wife, who's very insightful, said to him, is Jesus your friend? Is Jesus your friend? And he thought about that, and he thought, well, I often think about Jesus being my boss, and Jesus being my master who I serve. But I realized that I wasn't spending much time just developing my friendship with Jesus. Now, obviously, it's not an equal friendship. He's the Lord of the universe. He is our Lord and master. But the beautiful, the beautiful thing from cover to cover of the Bible is that God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to relate to his people. He wants to have fellowship with his people. He wants to commune with his people. Maybe the joy has dried up in your life because you're no longer communing with God. Now, of course, the peace offering, when you come into the New Testament, we have a covenant meal that we celebrate communion. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is our substitute. And just as, just as an Israelite worshiper would bring their animal into the tabernacle, into the place where God was present, and they would take certain parts and burn it off the offering, and then eat this meal with the priest before the presence of God, we come to the table of our Lord this morning. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus is the sacrifice. It's his sacrifice that we are celebrating, but he is also the high priest. We are eating with him today in the presence of God. So let us come. Let us come to the table and let us commune with God. Thanks for listening. Again, if you would like any information on the life at OBC, please check out our website, go to our Facebook page or download our app.